Let's talk about motives uh, together this morning. Um, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we do even the good things that we do? A uh, classic scenario that I know we're, we've all heard of, maybe thought a little bit about, helping the little old lady across the street. Why would we do that? Well, maybe we're just concerned for her physical safety and well-being. Sure, that, that would be a good thing to do. But maybe, maybe the reason you want to help the little old lady across the street is because she reminds you of your old late granny. And you feel guilty about the way that you treated your late granny. And you're trying to kind of make up for it in how you help this woman across the the street, or or maybe maybe you're helping the old lady across the street because of this sweet-looking young lady over here that you want to impress. That might be something else going on there as well. Or maybe maybe you see how complicated this gets. Maybe the reason you're trying to help this little old lady is because well you've kind of sized her up and she looks rich. Why do we do? the things that we do, even the good things that we do, why would we help another person? Why do we give towards others in need? Jesus says, good as those things may be externally, on the outside, we need to examine our hearts. Why are we doing the things that we do, even the good things that we do? Do. If you have your Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew, that's the first of the four Gospels that we have. It's the first book of the New Testament. So you have Matthew, then Mark, and Luke, and John. But we're in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. This is in the larger context of what is oftentimes referred to as the The Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Hear now God's word. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Well, would you pray with me? Lord, as Solomon tells us, blessed indeed is the one who finds wisdom, The one who gets understanding, gain from her is better than gain from silver. Her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. Nothing we desire can compare with her. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Such is the way of wisdom. The way of of true wisdom. Godliness, the way of walking in your ways according to your commands, and not just externally, but internally as well, as was intended. Uh, we ask that you would help us. We, we, uh, 
want to be wise and to grow in wisdom, and we ask even that we would want that more, and that you would shape our minds and hearts increasingly so through this time, uh, together in your word here in Matthew 6, uh, put us there, put us there on the mount, listening, hearing you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in terms of our series, where, where are we? We are post the post-Easter sermon series. Uh, we are now, as you can see, returning to the series in Matthew and as I said a moment ago, we are in the context and the flow of the larger Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus, over the course of chapter 5, just kind of reminding of where we've been, uh, he has laid out for us in the Beatitudes the marks of Christian character. Uh, then flowing from that, he has shown us something of uh, the reality of Christian influence with the images of salt and light. And then over the course of the rest of chapter 5, he has uh, shown us what our uh, the marks of Christian righteousness, what that really looks like. And that theme continues, Christian righteousness, on into chapter 6, but with a shift, a shift of emphasis, a shift of focus, shifting from what I'll call moral righteousness to religious righteousness, shifting from uh, our acts and attitudes towards one another, the emphasis of chapter 5, to our external works of devotion to God in chapter 6. You see, that's, it's a shift. It's a, it's a subtle shift, but it's a shift moving from about the second half of chapter 5 on into, into chapter 6. Here's the thing to understand. Both parts of that are necessary. Both parts of that are important. Uh, neither is optional. Neither is uh, up to us to decide what our personal preferences are. Jesus is speaking uh, to both as, as necessary, or you could even put it this way, are, are natural and expected of followers of Jesus. As he will say later in the Sermon on the Mount, you can know a tree by its fruit. Or if you're looking for our house, you can know a yard by its weeds. But that's another, another story. The point being that uh, Jesus commands... These external acts of devotion to God, okay? This religious righteousness, if you want to use that terminology, he's commanding that. He's calling for that. He is, or as he says there in verse one, he actually is calling for, commanding us to practice our righteousness before other people. He's calling for that. And that includes giving towards others, meeting their needs, and doing so generously. But the catch is we have to do this in the right way. The catch is that we have to do this in the right way. So to get at that, we're going to break this down into three parts, and you can see it there in your outline. The first thing we need to look at is this. The assumption that's driving, that's behind, that's underneath the instruction that he is giving. The governing assumptions behind everything that he is saying. Then the second thing being, I guess you could say, well, the second and third thing being these two ways that he is setting before us very clearly, very dramatically. The first being the way of the hypocrite. And I don't mean by that you people. I don't mean that. But the first being the way of the hypocrite. And then the way of the disciple. Okay, sorry. It's just, you know, left, right. I'm gesturing. I can't help it. Um, all right, so the first thing being the assumption 
behind the instruction. Now, you need to understand that, that almsgiving, and, and by that, that's just an old term. We don't use it so much these days, but it's an old term that means deeds of mercy, uh, relief uh, offerings, uh, acts of mercy and deeds of mercy coming alongside who are in need, almsgiving. Almsgiving is, is deeply rooted. It was a long-standing in Jesus' time, actually still in Juda Judaism today, but certainly in the first century, this was a, an essential thing uh, of, of Judaism. It was also, you could say, a, a sacred duty. In fact, the Hebrew word for righteousness is, in fact, almsgiving. It just depends on the context as far as how you translate it. That's how closely connected uh, this, this all was. And the rationale for that, the rationale for caring for those in need, coming alongside almsgiving, mercy, ministry, all of that is gratitude. From the very beginning, all through the Old Testament, it's, it's gratitude, a, a response of thankfulness to the true and living God for His care and supply for us. As a grateful response for that, we then will give generously and mercifully towards others. It's why you see time and again in the Old Testament the prophets railing against the people when you didn't see this. And because what does that reflect? It reflects a coldness of heart towards neighbor and towards God. And so that's why you see that. Well, that's a historical practice. So now you get to the first century, and you have Jesus on the scene, this enigmatic rabbi from, from Nazareth, and he is, well, seems to be saying some at least things in a new way, at the very least, what will he say about this? Well, it's to continue. It is good, it is right, it is to continue. Look at the way he, Jesus phrases this uh, there in uh, verse 2. He does not say, if you give to the needy. He says, when. It's just assumed. It's natural, it's good, it's right, it's appropriate. In fact, you could even go so far as to say, with Jesus, it is all the more so for, for us as his followers. For, for instance, Paul reflects on this in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It's actually printed on the second page of your, your bulletin. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he, be, he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8. Nine, Paul's words regarding Jesus. So the assumption, the assumption behind all of this, this instruction that's coming here in, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, is that this generous giving, almsgiving, however you want to phrase it, is right, it is good, it is appropriate, it is fitting. It is basic to the Christian life. It is a basic thing to the... It is Christianity 101. We worship and serve a merciful and generous God. We therein, as his followers, as his people, should be merciful and generous ourselves. Now, what's being questioned, you see, as we move through this text, is not the acts of generosity. It's the heart and attitudes behind them. That's the, that's the critical thing. It's not the acts, it's the heart and the attitude Behind them. Let me read to you these, uh, this quote here in your quotes and notes page. I think it's the last one there. From C.S. Lewis, his, his classic mere Christianity. Uh, this is gold. This is absolute gold what Lewis said here. Charity, giving to the poor, is an essential part of Christian morality. 
I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. Those are strong words, but right. What Lewis is saying there. Those are strong words, but they are right and true words. Which begs the question, what of us? Could they be said of you and I? If an auditor was to examine our financial statements, what would they find? Would they find something akin to what Lewis is saying in a positive sense? What would they find? What evidence could be found there in our, in our very finances? Clearly, Jesus calls us to give and to do so generously, or as you may even say, as Lewis says, radically, but to nonetheless do so in a right way. Okay, now that finally takes us to the second point and these two ways of giving. Uh, the way of the hypocrite being the first. That's verses 1 and 2, so let's read this. Verse 1, by the way, just a real quick aside here. Uh, verse 1 is the general principle, okay? The general principle, and then verses 3 through 4, he's, he's unpacking that general principle pertaining to giving. Now, by the way, then you get to verses uh, 5 through 8, and he unpacks that general principle of verse 1 pertaining to prayer. And then if you skip down further, you see in verses 16 through 18, he unpacks that general principle from verse 1 pertaining to fasting. In like six or eight months, we'll finally get there. But um, anyway, I just want you to see that as far as how, how the text flows. There's, Jesus puts this basic principle up there in verse 1, and he gives three uh, examples, I guess you could say for lack of a better term, uh, giving and prayer and fasting coming back, all rooted back there in verse 1. But let me read this, verses 1 and 2. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Okay, let's think this through. What's, what's going on? What's beneath the surface? What's the reason? What's the rationale for why these individuals on this path are acting or giving in the way that they are? Well, it's rooted in who they are. It's rooted in what they are. Jesus declares they are hypocrites. Now, actually, originally in the ancient Greek, what this referred to were actors in, in live play productions who would wear masks... This was a hypocrite. That's what it actually, the word meant. People who would be acting, they are performing. They are pretending to be something they are not. That's the kicker. It's a reference to people, any, any of us, who are pretending to be something we are not. That, in the classic sense, is what a hypocrite is. And what is it that the hypocrite wants? As Jesus says, they want, and what they're doing, even this right thing, even this good thing, 
They are doing it to be seen and noticed. They are doing it to be admired and praised. That's the reason for what they're doing. And the pattern, how does that flesh itself out? Well, he shows us. He gives us this very memorable metaphor of their going to the synagogue and going out on the streets, blowing a trumpet. I think this might be where we get the old term, tooting your own horn. I'm not sure, but my guess is probably so uh, from, from this, this text. And the, the meaning, of course, behind that metaphor is they're calling attention, they're trying to attract attention to themselves to what they're doing, but ultimately not just to what they're doing, but to themselves. That's what it's ultimately all about. Now please understand, a little qualifier here. Jesus is not saying, I'm going to be very careful in my wording here if I can be. Jesus is not saying it's wrong to give and to be noticed. What he's saying is it's wrong to give in order to be noticed. You see, see the distinction there? It has to do with the motive. It has to do with the purpose. Why are we giving? All right, so we've got the reason, the why, the, the underlying motives. We've got the pattern, how it flushes itself out. What happens? What's the result? We see there in the last part of verse 2. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now you can't really see this in the English, but in the original, what you can detect in there is yet another metaphor, another image, this coming from the financial world. And the idea being in, in that context, this is the kind of terminology that you would use to say, paid in full. Paid in full, the deal is done, issuance of a receipt. The meaning being, this is what you wanted. The praise, the adulation, the noticing of other people. This is what you've wanted, this is what you've gotten, and that is it. That is all, that is all you will have with such giving from such a heart. You understand? That's it. You'll get that, exactly what you wanted, and nothing more. That's the way of the hypocrite that Jesus is painting for us there, and he's giving us a warning. That's what it's intended to be. It's intended to be a warning. I mean, we know, we all know that the human tendency is to call attention to ourselves when we are giving of ourselves in any way at all. For all of us, there's a tendency, there's a temptation in, in that. It is true in the ancient world. In Jesus' day, this was very common. This is the practice for the wealthy to have the streets of the city paved. They would pay for that, and in essence what they're also paying for is a stone in the area with their name on it as the benefactor, right, of the city. That really hasn't changed a whole lot. When you think of terms of our day today, where the wealthy will, will give money towards a community or a hospital or, or, or a school, and they then will have their name put up in prominence, you know, on a stadium or an academic building or some signage of some kind, or maybe it's not so much the wealthy that's coming down just a little bit where reality is for most of us. Um, you know, maybe it's a, a brick, you know, somewhere where we're paying to have our name on a brick. Or maybe at, at some sort of charitable function, 
We're paying to have our name up there. Right? That's what we're after. That's what we're striving for. And what Jesus is saying in response to all of that, to that impulse, to that tendency, to that temptation of our hearts is, don't give to the needy. Don't give generously, but don't do this for your popularity's sake, for your vanity's sake, but for charity's sake. Don't, let's put it this way, don't do it for your need. I'm going to put that in quotation marks. Don't do it to meet your need. Do it for their need. That's what it's about. Don't twist this thing upside down and flip it on its head or contort it and destroy it. Again, he calls us so clearly here to give and to give generously as an expression of our hearts, of gratitude to him, but always done in the right way. Okay, so that's the one way, the way of the hypocrite. The contrast, of course, the counterpoint to that is the way of the disciples. So picking up verses 3 and 4. But, okay, so obviously you have the contrast. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, again, what's going on beneath the surface? What is the rationale? What are the reasons driving this? Well, again, it has to do a lot with who and what we are. Disciples of Jesus are followers of Jesus. Or as you can see, they're gently alluded to the Father, your Father. We are His children. Looking to Him for His care, for His provision. And so our desire, what we want in this, is to walk in His ways and to live in ways, like a child, to live in a way such that we are pleasing our Father, knowing at the same time we already have all His pleasure. You see? That's why we give in the way that we give. Because of who we are. As disciples and as His children. And that, of course, has a lot to do with the path, what it looks like, the, the pattern of our giving. And so, again, Jesus uses a metaphor here. This interesting one, memorable one, of the left hand not knowing exactly what the right hand is, is doing. The, 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 the meaning of that is simply this. That just as our giving is hidden from others, in a sense it's hidden from ourselves. We're, we're not self-conscious about it. We're not self-aware of it. We're not congratulating ourselves about our giving. We're not dwelling on our giving such that therein there's no reason for any, there's no opportunity because we're not dwelling on it. It cuts the legs right up from underneath the opportunity for there to be anyone else dwelling on our giving either because our very left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. It's hidden from ourselves. Now, by the way, just so you know, if you've been studying and paying attention to the Sermon on the Mount and you've ever heard a question asked or wondered about this, this is not, Jesus is not contradicting himself here. Let me take you back to chapter 5, verse 16. It's an important point to make here. Chapter 5, verse 16, he's going to say something. He's going to command something that sounds like the opposite of what he has just prohibited in, in chapter 6. 
on the surface. On the surface. Verse 16. In the same way, chapter 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, again, on the surface, that sounds completely the opposite as to what you're seeing there in verse 6 because, of course, Jesus is confused. Now, that's not at all what's going on here. The issue is he is speaking to two entirely different scenarios, two entirely different sets of temptations and, and issues and tendencies. Um, let me put it this way. Uh, A.B. Bruce, in his commentary years ago, put it this way. Referring to chapter 5, we are to show when we are tempted to hide. You see? Referring to chapter 6, we are to hide when we are tempted to show. Two completely different sins, two completely different temptations and scenarios. We are to uh, show when we're tempted to hide, hide when we're tempted to show. In both, it is God's glory, God's praise, God's honor, His name that we are longing to be lifted up and not ours. In the showing, in the hiding, in whichever way that would be appropriate depending on the context. Okay, so he is not contradicting himself in any way. So we have the reason then, we have this to what's driving this, we have the pattern, how it plays itself out. Result, what comes as the fruit of this? Verse 4, last part of verse 4, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, this might be somewhat puzzling to some of us. No few of us in this room are very familiar, and well, we should be, with the you know, how are how are we made secure in God's sight? How is our relation? How do we have this relationship with Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? So, how in the world can we be talking about rewards? Jesus, you are really confused. No, no. Let's understand something very clearly here. This comes in the context of a relationship of a child with their father. He's already said that, right? He said it once earlier. He's saying it here again, this reference to our father. He's gonna, when we get into the teaching on prayer, it's going to be emphasized all the more. So the, any reward that we will enjoy is the fruit, it is the product not of our merit, but his mercy. Not of our deserving, but his delighting. As a father, as a good father, he desires so intensely to shower down blessing upon his children. That's what we're talking about. That's what Jesus means when he speaks of this reward from the father to the child. Now, in this context, what sort of reward might we be speaking of? Well, I would suggest just a couple of things real simply. The sweet delight in serving another person without tied to anything else. The sweetness of it, the heart's sweetness in just being able to serve and come alongside another person in need. Or the, if I can put it this way, the pure joy in being an instrument in God's hands to meet another person's need. That's the reward. That's the kind of reward that we're speaking of here. The way of the disciple, that's what Jesus is putting up, putting before us here. If, if the way of the hypocrite is a warning, the way of the disciple is an invitation. 
It's an invitation. And maybe this might help as far as trying to get our minds around this idea of reward and, you know, because I, I know we think of rewards oftentimes in the context of like an, an award ceremony. Like, you've put this time and you've put this energy into this thing and they call you up front and they give you this trinket that then you put on a shelf that collects dust. And there's really, when you think about it, no real sensible connection between the work and the effort and the energy and the thing, the dust-collecting thing, sitting up on the shelf. That's not really the way the Lord's rewards work. There's much more of an intrinsic connection between those. Let me give you an example. When you devote yourself with, in time and energy to the practice with a, a musical instrument, your reward is what? Getting better. It's tied. The two are tied together. Or if you devote, if you give energy and attention to a relationship, what is the reward? Increasing trust and intimacy in that relationship. There's an intrinsic connection between the effort and the labor and the reward, if you will. And that's the way the Lord's rewards work with us, but again, all coming from the heart and the hand of our Heavenly Father. Oh, one last thing on, on this. How, how can we do this in, a, in, in the left hand, not knowing what the right... How can we grow in doing giving in, in such a secret sort of way, hiding it from ourselves and one another? Let me just give you a very practical example I, I hope might help in some way. So let's say for a moment that you do have the trinket. You do have the plaque. That, that you know somebody gave you for the effort and energy that you put into something. Or let's, you know, let's broaden this a minute. Let's say you've got a souvenir that you brought home with you from a missions trip. Okay? Or let's say it's just a number. A number at the bottom of a giving statement. Your giving statement. You know, for the, the month, the quarter, whatever. Or it's your budget. And you're looking at your budget and you can see how much it is that you're allocating every month towards the church and, and other charitable organizations. How do you regard those things? The trinket, the souvenir, or the number? How do you think about those things? What Jesus is calling us to do here when it comes to the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing is taking no pride in it. No, no gloating, no boasting, None whatsoever. Rather, rather, every do this. Every time your eyes fall on that trinket on the shelf, or that souvenir, or that number, give thanks. Give thanks to the one who allowed you in his mercy to participate in that venture in the little small, let's be honest, the small way that you did in a much larger story that he is writing. Give thanks to him. And your left hand will not know what your right hand is doing. It will become increasingly more so just a part of what you are. It will become more and more a lifestyle of, of, of such, if you will, secret giving. That which the kind of thing that he is calling for here. Again, he clearly Jesus calls us to give, to give, as as Lewis says here, you know, 
the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare? Absolutely. But to do so with the right spirit, the right heart. All right. So we have the way of the hypocrite. Sorry. Again, over here. And, and the way of, of the disciple uh, over here. I'll try and mix it up next week. Um, how can we grow? How can we get better, for lack of a better term, in becoming the one and not the other? Well, I mean, you know, one surfacey sort of way to answer that would be to say, well, you know, the way to avoid hypocrisy in giving is certainly not to stop giving. That would be a ridiculous answer. But rather to give so secretly. But how do we do that? I would say by keeping, and I don't mean this tritely at all, I really do mean this, by keeping our eyes on Jesus. The one who spoke these words and who has given and is giving and promises yet to give us so much. I mean, to the depth of our being and need. Um, and as we do that, as we keep our eyes on Him every day, through the day, as, as the great giver Himself, keeping our eyes locked on Him, this lifestyle of this kind of, of giving will become as natural to us as it is as I inhale, I will then exhale. I read a quote from Lewis earlier, that long one from Mere Christianity. Well, let's talk about the man himself for just a moment. The, 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 the bio of the man who actually spoke those words. I think it's worth considering here. Um, some of you, you may know this, know this, some of you may not. Um, in Lewis's early days, uh, after he became a believer, a little later in life, uh, as, the, as he was writing and the royalties became to come in, they really started to, to come in quite, quite a bit, but he decided to maintain his standard of living as it had been before and just give all this, these new monies away anonymously to various charities. So when the screw tape letters were published back in the 40s, and when he gave those radio addresses on the BBC that later became Mere Christianity, he gave all the funds, all the royalties that he gleaned from that to a clergy widow's fund. Now the problem came in this. What Lewis didn't know was that after he had given all that money away, he still was being taxed on it. See, for all of Lewis's great other talents, he was terrible at math. He really was. And so fortunately for, for Lewis, uh, his dear friend and attorney... Owen Barfield set up a charitable trust form. The Agape Fund is what it was called. And the Agape Fund functioned for years this way. Two-thirds of all of C.S. Lewis's royalties went into this fund that therein were distributed completely, 100% anonymously to people in, in financial need, to clergy widows, to seminary students, to churches, to various charities, all through Great Britain and beyond. I'm told by some folks who worked at, uh, editors who worked at assembling Lewis's uh, letters and, and loose papers and such that they have been getting for years. They keep learning of new people whose lives were touched. And once they figured it all out and did all the detective work, all there's hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds of people whose lives were transformed because of this man's generosity. 
one on this point, um, Lewis's gardener, Fred Paxton, who, by the way, if you're a Narnia fan, uh, was the man whom Puddleglum was uh, patterned off after, the marsh wiggle, the less-than-glass-half-full sort of fellow. Well, anyway, Fred Paxton, uh, at the reading of Lewis's will, learned that he had been bequeathed only 100 pounds. Well, Paxton then was quoted as, as saying this. Well, and I'm taking it from his Irish brogue, transliterating it a little bit here to make it uh, understandable. Well, it won't take me far, will it? But then he added this classic, beautiful statement. Mr. Jack, he never had no idea of money. His mind was always set on higher things. Well, it was, not just in his writings, but in his whole life. And that ought to be true of us. Our minds, our hearts, set on higher things. Who we are, what we are, what we're called to be and to do when it comes to the stewardship of our finances what it means to give and to give radically and generously, and how so, what the heart has to be. All that has to be done in, in the right way, and the sweet part of it all is the right way finds its roots in Jesus himself. Let's pray together. Lord, you do call us to give generously towards the meeting of others' needs. You call us not to rely on our things, but on You. To know You to be our Father and to trust You. To lean into You with our whole lives. To respond to You and Your care over us with gratitude. Knowing all the while that we are made in the image and the likeness of a generous giving merciful God so therein made to imitate that very generosity and mercy. We, we intellectually, we hear that. We know that to a degree. We also know that you call us to do this in the right way. Not meeting our proud, vain needs to be known and noticed. To, but to truly to meet others' needs. That this would not be about our name and glory, but yours. And Lord, here at the outset, we, we are acknowledging that this is not our natural bent. And it is not the way of the, the larger world. So we're not getting much encouragement here either. So we are asking that you would help us. You the one who has called us to this, you the one who has patterned it out for us, and you the one who walks with us, we're asking that you would help us in this. Transform our hearts, transform our giving. We pray this in your name. Amen.